1: You're listening to Buzzbeat Radio, your premier Charlotte Hornets show.
2: All right,
3: welcome in, Buzzbeat listeners. This is episode 49 of Buzzbeat Radio. Uh, we are back trying to shake the cobwebs off uh, after the Christmas holiday. Lots of food, lots of family, uh, lots of watching Hornets on rerun. <laughs> and, uh, We've all been discussing that before jumping on here to record. So we are happy to be back. Don't forget, BuzzBeat Radio is a proud member of the Almighty Baller Radio Network. Check out almightyballer.com for tons of other great NBA content in the podcast form. And also sportschannel8.com. I know that... uh, that Hayes Permar is out on the road. Um, he covered Duke's uh, bowl game just the other night. I think BG maybe is in like El Paso getting ready for the pack game. Um, so Sports Channel 8 is doing an awesome job covering the ACC bowl games. And again, ACC basketball really getting there ready to heat up uh, with conference play beginning, I guess, this weekend. So uh, so check out SportsChannel8.com. They've got all your ACC needs and, and sport, North Carolina sports needs as well. Uh, and follow them at Sports Channel 8 on Twitter. All right, let's get in here. Richie, how was your holiday? Do you, do you have anything left in the tank after
1: all that eggnog and, and turkey and ham and whatever else? See, I'm not much of an eggnog drinker. I don't think I've ever had eggnog before, so I'll, I'll definitely have to try it at some point. Uh, but like we were talking about this pre-recording, it's, it's um, a lot of family. It's, it's, I think we need to get back into the swing of things with work, uh, have some structure in my life. But yeah, I, d- I definitely need to try some eggnog at some point. I, I've always been kind of, uh, I've always kind of been grossed out by it. I don't know, just by the look of it, but who knows?
3: <laughs> I've, you know, I was always, I'm with you, I was grossed out by just like the name, the name. eggnog. Yeah. I never like heard, I thought never thought it sounded very good. Um, but I I do enjoy a, a good bourbon. So you know, I'll uh, be honest. I had my fair share of eggnog yeah. <laughs> this, uh, this holiday <laughs> this holiday season. So I, I probably need a little. Is break that what from you it. pair it
1: with? Is that what you pair it? Uh,
3: with? Yeah, yeah. So I'll go bullet bourbon. Um, and I just oh. buy literally the uh, the eggnog mix. It, it it says eggnog. I don't right. even know. Like, I think it's barva made. Maybe is the. Uh, is the type or whatever, but I just buy that. Looks comes in like a little milk carton. Mm-hmm. Pour it in with a little bourbon. Tastes like a, a bourbon milkshake. It's delicious. So uh <laughs> BG, what's happening, man? How was your holiday?
2: Uh holidays were great. Spent it back here in beautiful Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I'll be for one more day before heading back to Raleigh. But it's been nice. Uh watched a fair amount of hoops. Uh enjoyed some time with the family and the family dog of course, and uh, no, it's been good, but it's getting, it's about, you know, stuff's about to get kind of crazy, because ACC basketball season starts up fast and furious, really, this week, um, especially this Saturday, the 30th, so, yeah, keep it locked in, also, accsports.com and Sports Channel late, all kinds of good ACC basketball coverage of both those places, but nah, no eggnog this year, uh, I do like eggnog, but, you know, if a year passes without me having any, um... I'll I'll live, but I had plenty to drink around the holidays. This Hornets team will certainly (laughs) cause you to want to do that.
3: No doubt about it. Um, So we're back. We're going (laughs) to, as we've done here for probably about the past month now, we'll we'll try to cover this team and and give you a little hope uh, to stay with us for the rest of the season and watch more Hornets basketball. But. Uh, all that to say, it's been much of the same for Charlotte. Um, they stand at 12 and 22 after last night's loss at home to Boston. Um, real quickly though, I just wanted to get some, some newsy items out of the way here. The Hornets did, uh, release their city. edition. well, along with most of the NBA yesterday, uh, Hornets also released their city edition. Uh, am I saying that right, Richie? It was the city edition uniform,
1: right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. the, The city edition uniform, um, Let's just do this real quickly, a, a, kind of a 1 to 10 grading scale. Um, I would give the City Edition a, a 4.5. I wasn't crazy about it. The <laughs> black on black, I wasn't a big fan of. I guess the design on the side is pretty cool. And on the, on the shorts there, the alternate uh, Hornets logo, the teal one that they use, uh, you're not going to be able to really see that. But you know, once you kind of see the uh, jersey analysis online, I thought, okay, that is pretty cool. So
1: I, I give it a 4.5. I wasn't as crazy about it as some other people. Yeah, I gave my thoughts on Twitter earlier. I, I like the side panels. I like the look of the side panels a lot. Like you said, Spencer, I'm not the biggest fan of the black-on-black look. And I think something something just looked missing on the front. But overall, I'd probably give it like an 8 out of 10. Um, and I'm not too big on the name Buzz City, first off. So, I mean, that's, that kind of takes away from it as well.
2: Yeah, I'm probably closer to the 7 out of 10 range. I thought it was all right. I actually thought about half of the jersey releases were pretty nice. Um, and I did like the hornet, the side paneling on the Hornets, like Richie pointed out on Twitter. I thought that was great. But, man, I, I thought the Utah Jazz one is terrible. I thought the Orlando Magic one is terrible. I thought yep. the Spurs one was really bad. I and mean, the Orlando Magic one looks awful. And uh, <laughs> the Utah Jazz one just looks kind of insane. But I thought I thought most of them were pretty cool. I thought Washington's was good, Milwaukee's. I like Chicago's. Um, Cleveland. Yeah, Chicago's. I even thought Sacramento's was was sort of out there but looked mm-hmm. pretty cool too.
3: So I think that was my favorite one, the Sacramento one. That was cool.
2: Yeah, it looks cool. And so yeah, I guess the the other thing too is don't, you know, this will be a this is like a revolving door every year, right? Like there will be a new right. city uniform in the 2018-2019 season. So, uh yeah, I mean we'll see what I mean, certainly Charlotte's is unique in it, in that it's the only one with the uh, the Jumpman logo on it. But, uh, but yeah, the not I'm, I'm not like a, b- a big uniform guy, but I did think overall the City uniform release was a success for the league. Coming up
3: as we enter the new year here, Travion Graham has a contract um, guarantee date of January the 7th. So his contract will be fully guaranteed on the 7th as long as the Hornets decide to exercise that and not waive him. So we'll keep our eyes on that, but... You know, I think they would certainly be wise uh, on really what is a minimum deal for Travion to keep him around for the for the remainder of the season. He's been, uh, frankly, the only other bright spot, I think, off the bench for Charlotte outside of Jeremy Lamb uh, this season. So I think that, you know, I don't know why they wouldn't keep him around unless there's a trade or something um on their doorstep you know as we enter the new year then i would assume that they're going to keep tg around kind of further thing so while we're on that guys let's get some thoughts about graham and what he's been able to bring uh to you know to the hornets this season and again in a, a bench and second unit that has really really struggled bg i mean what have, what have you seen in graham's game the most that number one you've been most impressed with and number two looking ahead to his potential what can he become as a player
2: I like him because he's sort of he, – he's kind of a three-and-a-half, right? He, he sort of floats between the, the small forward and the power forward positions, which I, I love guys that have that versatility, especially when it's mixed with some shooting. Now, we don't have a, a huge sample size with, with Trevion Graham, but shooting 44% on catch-and-shoot threes this season and 8 of 19 on corner threes, so close to 50%. Again, tiny sample size, but – like that sort of perimeter shooting mixed with a guy that can that plays really hard and can guard 3s and 4s, you know, fairly credibly and has a little bit of off the dribble game too. It's he's dirt cheap uh, as far I mean, he is he is as cheap as you can find a, a you know a young player with some upside in the league. And so I, I I think he's a guy that the Hornets should look to keep around and I wouldn't even be mind I wouldn't even mind seeing him get uh, some more playing time to the point where I wouldn't be upset if he became the team's backup four at least for a week and you just you see how it goes but I like Trevion he's a ball mover and he plays hard and he's a, he has some upside defensively and again we've seen him be a pretty good shooter for this team from the perimeter on, on a roster that really doesn't have enough two-way players and he's a guy that offers you a little bit of of added value on both sides of the floor so I think Trevion's been good this year
1: yeah, you guys said it all. I mean, there's not not much more to add to that. I mean, he's he's a like you said a dirt cheap player this is a no-brainer like it like he is going to be playing with the Hornets for the rest of the season smart player heady player Uh, he's strong and physical like you said Brian he can kind of you know switch between the three and the four Uh, if he needs to guard a bigger guy he has at least the the weight on him to kind of keep them out of the paint Uh, he did an all right job on Jason Tatum last night not not too great but I guess a lot of people uh, could say the same thing but I think the biggest thing that he adds uh, is definitely the shooting and he's getting better and better at that and and um, I think he had like five corner threes in that second Milwaukee game, which was great because at one point Milwaukee was playing a matchup zone. We needed them to get out of that. So um, I think just overall, like you said, Brian, he needs to get more playing time.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you guys. I, I think he should get more playing time. Um, you know, Travion represents something that the Hornets absolutely do not have on this roster is a wing that can come in It's a low usage player off the bench. Who's great off the ball. Brian, you mentioned that he's a ball mover, but you know, if you watch him on, on dribble penetration, he's so, so good at floating and flowing his, his body either to the corner or to the top of the arc, flowing to the open spot uh, where he can be found for passes. And frankly, when he's in the game, that's the only time you see the Hornets take corner threes. Uh, And it's for that reason right there, because he's low usage. He doesn't need the ball in his hands, um, you know, when the ball hits his hands, it's either going to be a quick pass and a cut or a catch and shoot opportunity. So, you know, he is what the Hornets need more of, um, you know, his counterpart, Jeremy Lamb is really the opposite of, of everything I just explained. But, you know, he, he has been, I think, developed to be kind of a second banana scorer, offensive creator, but the Hornets need more of these wings, uh, that are the th- of the three and D style. And, and that's what he represents. Not only would I think that Travion stays around for the remainder of the year? I would actually have to look this up, but if he is eligible to be extended once they do pick up this option, uh, I wouldn't be totally shocked if the Hornets rolled out um, you know, a two or three year um, opportunity here on, on, on a cheap deal for Travion and, and why Travion wouldn't go ahead and, and and take that. Uh even even if it might be cheaper thinking he can get on the open market for a guy that has bounced around uh the league and has kind of lived on these non-guaranteed uh in 10-day contracts, uh you want to take a guaranteed deal and, and lock up some uh lock up some money long term. So, um Yeah, yeah we'll see. And, and I don't know what the rules on that exactly are. BG, you're going to say something.
2: Just just real quickly, he uh you know, he's it fully guaranteed this year. He comes to a salary of 1.3 million. Uh, he has a qualifying offer this summer uh, for a little over 1.8 million dollars. Um, you know, as he would head into restricted free agency. So yeah, you know, if they do decide to bring him back for the remainder of the season, they would still have to make a decision on him come July, basically. But like you said he's a guy that you could probably lock up for a small amount of money and, you know, see what kind of player he becomes because he's still only 24 years old.
3: Yeah. So uh, I could be understanding this wrong, but I would think the Hornets could offer an extension as long as it's for that 1.8 or greater. uh, Mm -hmm. If if I understand the rules, right. So they should be able to offer something to Travion, like, you know, three years, seven or $8 million, which I think would be totally fair. Um, you know, and keep this guy around. I mean, he is, he's perfect coming off the bench. Really. I would think for just about any team in this league, uh, plays on both ends, seems to be a great locker room guy, does his job every single night. And again, he just represents what the Hornets need, that three and D style player that they just has eluded them (laughs) for quite a while now. Um, not being named Marvin Williams. So, oh, and then Cody Zeller, as we kind of wrap up the news portion here before we jump into the games, Cody Zeller uh, has reached that three-week mark uh, since his surgery, so three more weeks and we should be able to expect Zeller to get back on the floor. That will be interesting timing uh, for Charlotte as they could certainly be out of any kind of uh, race for the playoffs by then, um, and when Cody's injury history. I mean, how much do you really throw him back into the fire at that point? So that should be interesting. But we are at the three week mark of his six week injury timeline. So Zeller back sooner than later. All right, guys, let's uh, let's jump in to really three games. I think we're going to cover the back to back Milwaukee games. And then we'll talk about Boston last night. The Hornets go one and two during that stretch Let's start with the game, uh, I guess, which would have been December 22nd, first of the back and back, uh, back to back with the Bucks. All right, this is a game that we saw Dwight Howard get hurt early, and then we saw the Hornets' offense show some juice uh, and show a style of play that we obviously have not seen this year because it has not been needed with Dwight out there. Brian, you've talked about this. You and I kind of talked about this the other day, how much different it looked. It was a five out, uh, driving kick style. That was quite refreshing.
2: Yeah, no doubt. It, uh, you know, there, it was working perfectly well too, all until Milwaukee went to the Giannis at center lineup, which we can probably talk about a little bit more here, but, I thought this was um, sort of the performance that I was expecting to see all season from Charlotte, um, you know, when I thought this, this team could win 47, 48 games, and they obviously won't get anywhere close to that now. But, uh, but no, the ball movement was good, over 290 passes in this game. Uh, the lineup with Batum, Kaminsky, Kemba, Marvin, and MKG was really good. played six minutes, 136 points per 100 possessions. And it was just fun to watch them space the floor and open up driving lanes for guys like MKG, Kemba, and uh, man, they really took advantage of some of you know Milwaukee's true fives like Henson and, and, and uh, Thon Maker too. They, it was fun game to watch. I mean, they, they lost that night, but that uh, that that's as as much fun as I've had watching a Hornets game probably the whole season, and truly one of their better offensive performances they've had all year actually in terms of. Shooting the basketball, I believe they hit, uh, I'm not, i am have to pull it up, but they hit how many three-pointers in that game? Uh, yeah, 12 of 26, tw- all 12 of those makes were from above the break, and uh, fun, fun game to watch them play, and to see the ball fly around a little bit more, with basically Kaminsky and Johnny O'Brien playing all of the minutes at the five, Dwight Howard limited to under five minutes of action in that game.
1: I thought the aggressiveness on uh, both sides of the ball, but especially on offense, was definitely visible, especially out of two people uh, Kimba and Batum. I thought Kimba was very, very aggressive in attacking the basket. And who knows, this could have been a result of Dwight's injury. He had more room to work with. Uh, He shot the ball 7 of 9 within 5 feet of the hoop. Uh, And a lot of those coming in the third quarter. Walker finished with 32 points and shot the ball 62% uh, from the field. The other player that I thought was very aggressive was Batum. Um, I just feel when Batum is out there with Dwight, I don't see him moving as much I don't know I don't know if it's a result of you know Dwight getting those post-ups and Batum just kind of sits there think, okay my my strengths are now nullified because now the ball is stopping uh, I, I saw that when when Dwight went out Batum was more aggressive and decisive and uh, you know when he took his shots when he passed the ball finding the cutters they even used him a lot in the mid post and that's kind of where he looks to distribute the ball but also he's kind of getting comfortable shooting off that like Dirk, Dirk shot the off leg shot fading so I mean it just also gets Kimball off ball as well. So those two players, Batum and Kimble, I definitely saw an increased in in the aggression and the aggressiveness uh, when it comes to attacking the basket, and Batum just looking for a shot.
3: Yeah, you know this game was it was clearly a Kimball Walker type of game uh, in terms of the space that he had. Uh, I mean, you know when you've got Frank Kaminsky setting a ball screen or Marvin Williams or, or even Johnny O'Brien, um, you know that big is not a he can't just kind of sag low as, as Dwight rumbles down the lane behind him. Um, you know, he has to make a decision. Am I going to recover to the pop? Uh, or am I going to stay here with Kimba for a second longer? And and Kimba it, it can easily react to that. Uh, and he was that game. I mean, that was, that was the Kimba Walker, really, if I would say the last two seasons that we've been used to seeing, uh, incredibly efficient. It was really nice to see him get it going a little bit from behind the arc in that one had really struggled coming into that game shooting the ball. Uh, but yeah, the Hornets, you know, this was just crunch time. Um, they came up short. I mean, I made a few notes. That <clears throat> there's this thing that Silas has been doing late in games, and he did a little bit in the second half last night, where he'll take MKG and place him on really the primary ball handler. He did it against the Bucks in this game, as he had MKG guard Balletto some in the end. Um, and then when Marvin gets put into the pick-and-roll uh, along with MKG, the two don't don't switch that action, which is a little frustrating to they me. I, I they do, right? May, I mean, I, I, they're similar I mean, players. Like, that's yeah, and that, that's part of the reason that like you put MKG on the ball in those mm-hmm. situations is because pick and roll defense becomes easier. Obviously, Kimba can't switch a whole lot because that's a big time mismatch uh, on you know for the bigger body. But you know, with Marvin and MKG in this action. Sure, if you don't want to switch, that's fine. You can, you know, chase around. But, but this pick and pop stuff that has become so easy for other teams, even against MKG and Marvin uh, coverage, is a little bit silly. Like if you're going to put MKG on the ball, then at least give those two the liberty to just go ahead and switch that action because Marvin's a little bit slow, you know, slower, fleet-footed wise. But other than that, you're just going to have to live with that, <laughs> and uh, it's a little bit frustrating. I and mean, you saw in this game. The Bucks burn Charlotte in a late game situation um, with that where Marvin, you know, M- MKG's weaking Bledsoe to his left hand. Uh, Marvin is kind of like on the other side of the screen expecting expecting MKG to chase Bledsoe over the screen to his right hand. And so he's completely out of position and, and Bledsoe zooms to the rim for an easy left handed layup. It's just it's a little bit baffling to me why the Hornets cannot get this pick and roll coverage down. Uh, sometimes they look like they want to switch. Sometimes they look like they're they're trapping hard, recovering from the weak side. Uh, it's just all these different looks, and I, I can't really tell what the plan is. Um, and it's it's breaking down at really important times again in this Milwaukee game uh, last Friday. I guess was the, was the twenty second. Yeah. Um. So so frustrating to me there. I mean, I like again the initial fold from Silas to put MKG on the ball, but then why we cannot take the next step of just switching the action is is mind boggling, and it it buried us in that Milwaukee game Friday night.
1: You you almost wonder if they're so used to not switching that it's like second nature where they're where they're not going to switch. So when you play these small ball lineups or where you put mkg on the ball handler and you're and they're setting a pick you would think that marvin and mkg would, would be an auto switch there because it doesn't there's not much of a disadvantage when you make that switch but may, maybe it's just so second nature by now that marvin doesn't think about those types of things to switch automatically so who knows who knows why it's happening like that
2: i think that's a great point richie like watch golden state play and watch how watch how smooth those guys i mean they know we're switching on Especially when we if Draymond's playing center, but even even with Jordan Bell at the five now, they know they're switching on just about you know damn near everything, uh-huh. and they move on a freaking string. They're liquid. Everything is everything is in sync. All five guys are rotating and and covering at at the same time. I mean, it's it's really impressive to watch. And for a team like Charlotte, the play is more conservative. That sort of drop scheme that we talk about all the time. Yeah, I, I think switching it's not second nature to them, and they've got to think through it a little bit more. And when that happens, then you can, leaks happen in the defense. Um, also in this game, too, I liked some of the minutes Frank got at the 5 yeah. um, in the third quarter. When they, when Milwaukee went with their version of the death line, but I don't know why Jason Kidd's been so reluctant to move Giannis to the 5. It took him into the, you know, damn near the fourth, the start of the fourth quarter when they are about to lose to the Hornets uh, on their home floor for him to go with Giannis at the 5. Yeah. Um, the Bucks are plus 20 with Giannis on the court in this game. You know, I thought MKG did a pretty good job defensively against him. But, yeah, for Milwaukee, they're the lineup with Giannis at the five. This is Giannis, Bledsoe, Brogdon, Kilpatrick, and Middleton. Mm-hmm. They score 145 points per 100 possessions over that stretch of time. The Hornets score just 33 points per 100 possessions. Uh, first possession with Giannis at the five, Frank defending. I mean, come on. That's terrifying. And... um Bucks get a corner three for Kilpatrick. They go on an, an immediate 12-0 run with Giannis at the five. And it just seemed like the perfect time. We've talked all year. We've been basically begging the Hornets to try to get a little more creative in terms of, you know, how they roll these lineups out on both offense and defense. And this just seemed like the perfect time to try Marvin and MKG at the four and five. And they just didn't do it. And it caused issues defensively for them everywhere. And I think it's maybe a bit reductive to say this, but ultimately I think that's why they lost the game that they had a the chance of winning on the road against the playoff team in Milwaukee. And so I just would have liked to have seen um, Marvin and MKG get some time at the four and five, especially because Milwaukee even went with Middleton at the five in some of these sort of uh, closing game lineups. And it just, you just can't have guys like Kaminsky or O'Brien out there trying no. to chase or, or Middleton, twenty feet from the hoop, it's just a losing strategy every single time.
3: Yeah, there's nowhere to hide, Frank, in against lineups like that. Um, and agree with you, BG. And we've seen Silas do some different stuff, but it's just like that—that that next step. He's—he's <laughs> he's yeah. not been willing to take so far. Uh, so the Hornets lose this one uh, in Batum. Uh, some, some bright spots. He's five of seven in this game. Six assists. Scores fourteen points just real quickly on Batum, like as good and as good as MKG has been recently and, and as aggressive, um, Nicholas Batum needs to be taking more field goal attempts than Michael K. Gilchrist. And it's becoming a trend that MKG is attempting more shots, uh, you know, during these games. And, and it's just, it's, it's inexcusable. I mean, I, I understand Batum is more of a distributor and he, his style of game is not to be the go-to guy, but the Hornets have got to figure out ways to get him more involved offensively. And it's, it, it seems damn near impossible when Dwight Howard's on the floor, right. just because of yeah. the way Batum has to be used, and he, he he likes to use that baseline area to find cutters and, and and to come off pin downs and things like that. And Dwight's just in the way, but we get we got to do something here because you know Michael Kid gilchrist is putting his head down uh, and, and getting to the front of the rim. As much as I've liked the aggression, um, it, it, that's not a winning strategy. Versus a guy who's making twenty plus million dollars, uh, and it looks like he doesn't want the ball in in some situations right now on the floor. So, we got to figure out a way to to fix that.
2: Just re- real quickly on Batum, he has a usage rate under seventeen percent this season. Like, show me another $22 million wing that has a usage rate under 20%. He's at 15% usage in the month of December and only a 13% usage rate over the last uh, four games. Like, that guy's, it's just, it's got to get up. I I know he's a connector. I know he's a distributor. I know that he, you know, makes, he moves the ball around and, you know, maybe guys play better off of him, but he's being paid as. As a, as a, like he is a high usage wing that scores 20 points. It's one thing if he's not comfortable doing that, but he's got to at least try. Like it's just, it's just, he has to try. Mm -hmm. And then one last thing on the Milwaukee game uh, only nine turnovers for the Hornets in that game. That was the third fewest they've had in a contest this season. I don't think it's a coincidence that Dwight Howard played only five minutes in that game, (laughs) under five minutes in that game, and they had uh, single digit turnovers. No, I I think
3: it's not a coincidence at all. Uh, The Hornets are hard to guard uh, when you get Frank out there at the five, or J.O.B. even for that matter. I mean, it just presents that floor spacing component that is not there typically with Dwight Howard around. Um, You know, to your point, BG, I I don't understand. Like, this doesn't seem to be a priority for sure. Like, they're not not running more stuff to get Batum involved. And this guy's around on... (laughs) a max deal for four more seasons. So, you know, it would seem like it should be a priority to get him more comfortable in the offensive end and run more stuff for him. I know he's frustrated playing with Dwight Howard right now. And I, and I know he's not sure where he fits um, in, in that offensive strategy, but you know, that's gotta be a front office coaching decision that's made and said, Hey, look, Batum is going to attempt 14 field goal attempts a game or, or 12 or or whatever that number is. And, I mean, hell, take two or three of those post ups away for Howard and just give them to Batum, and just let Howard stand in the opposite short corner. I mean, I know it's still crowded, but God Almighty, I mean, at least you're not flushing possessions down the toilet, and you're also getting your max player involved in the offense. I mean, it, I didn't know that usage was that low. That's that's pretty unbelievable.
1: Yeah, it's it's difficult. Yeah. It's a combination of his him being passive and the fact that Dwight's out there. I mean, he he. He does best when the ball is in his hands, Batum, that is, and getting you know getting Howard off the court and getting Kimball off ball, that's, that's where I think Batum is going to excel. But I guess luckily we're not going to be talking about that Toronto game, which happened th- the prior to this where he only took oh, one God. one field goal <laughs> attempt. Only took one field goal attempt in 26 minutes. But I, I just think it's difficult for him. I, I, maybe it's just my eyes, but I, I just feel like he doesn't move as much when, when Dwight's out there. I could be totally wrong, but maybe you guys take a look at it. When he's on the court with Dwight, just watch his off ball move. I don't. I don't see it as much.
3: No, I. I don't either. And and <laughs> it is just like the old adage of basketball. I mean, if you're playing with somebody that doesn't give it up and is more probably a selfish player than an unselfish player, you know why are you going to bust your tail, um, you know, to get open and, and find spaces, and and why are you going to give more energy knowing you're not going to get it, right? Like, it, mm-hmm. I think it can be that simple here. Um. <laughs> Kimba's more at the top of the arc. You know he's waiting on the kick out. But for a guy like Batum to get it, you know he does have to find the open spaces and cut through the lane and and be creative. And he, I just honestly think that he's like, what's the point? What is the yeah. point of doing that? I'm not going to get the ball. This guy's not looking to create for anybody else. I mean, I don't want to like go down the the let's beat Dwight up again, but. I, it's a terrible fit, and Batum doesn't enjoy playing with him. All right. You can, Rich, you're absolutely right. You can watch the body language in the court and see that he's confused and he's frustrated. And it is because of Dwight Howard. He doesn't know how to fit next to him. Anything else in this game? Should we move to Saturday night in Charlotte?
1: Sure. Let's, let's move to Saturday. Well, just one quick thing. Uh, Carter Williams missed another layup in that game, but let's go to Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next game, and then last night. Yeah. Um,
3: unbelievable. Uh, All right, so the Hornets do get a win in this one, 111-106 in the second of a back-to-back with Milwaukee. You know, Dwight Howard's back for this one, and he was damn good. I mean, he pounded John Henson on the block. This was one of those matchups where he can just overpower the guy who's going to guard him, you know, 90% of the game, which is John Henson. And, uh, you know, frankly, Dwight wasn't really – he wasn't turning it over. He he turned it over four times, but it wasn't – that egregious game where he's catching on the low block. He's trying to spin to the baseline, dribbling it out of bounds or stepping out of bounds or, you know, getting in a chicken fight down on the block with somebody and be called for offensive foul. Um, It felt like he really dominated around the basket against Henson in this game. So he finished a seven 11 from the field. Seven of twelve from the free throw line as his free throw percentage continues to improve. Twenty-one points, sixteen rebounds, even dished out two assists. So, um, really, a game where, where Dwight was uh, a, a positive factor offensively, I would say. Batum a little bit more involved. He takes thirteen field goal attempts in this one. Finishes with twelve points, five of thirteen from the field, uh, and then Kemba, you know, a little bit of a regression. Here, Um, five of 15 from the field, three of seven uh, from behind the arc. So really struggled, you know, in that mid-range to short mid-range area. And BG, you you plug Dwight back in and all of a sudden Kimba, not as effective uh, because he has no space. Uh, He does hit three threes in this one. Um, but you know, and those were the main contributors for Charlotte. They did get some nice play off the bench. Travion was excellent. Hits three, four threes. Kaminsky had a pretty good game here. Uh, and lamb just, you yep. know, consistent off the bench again. Um, so an overall team effort. I mean, Charlotte had six guys in double figures in this one. Uh,
1: one Oh six win, Richie, some notes from this one you had. Well, just just to add to Dwight, I, I went back and watched all of his uh, made field goals in this game, and there weren't a lot of backdowns. I would say that maybe of his seven makes, maybe one, two of them might have been with his back to the basket, while the rest of them were alley-oops or kind of him finding some space behind the defense. Uh, but like you said, Spencer, he did attack the small ball bucks and also John Hinton as well. He's just going to overpower that guy. So definitely give credit to Dwight. We, we um, bag on him a lot in this, in this show, but he did well. And the bench outscored Milwaukee's bench 50 to 28 and big thanks to Travion Graham. I almost wish would have played the previous game because we did a great job of driving the lane and we could have kicked him out to him for three in the corner. He had 14 points, four and five of them coming from corner three. So yeah, I thought the third quarter was very interesting. This was when Milwaukee went to a two, three zone, no shooters for Charlotte. That's when Graham entered. He hit several corner threes to kind of loosen up that defense and it looked a little hopeless for the Hornets at this point in the game, and the Hornets ended the third quarter on a 24 to 10 run to kind of keep this game close and manageable heading to the fourth quarter, and then Lamb stepped it up to begin the fourth quarter, and then we uh, we finished strong, and MKG had a huge huge stop on Middleton to end the game.
3: Yeah, yeah. Charlotte, sorry, real quick, BG, just on uh, on your point there, Richie. Charlotte uh, made their run really with. With Travion Graham, Frank Kaminsky, uh, Carter Williams, actually with a plus seven net rating in this game, so uh, the bench really, really outplayed Milwaukee. Something we have not grown accustomed to no. uh, with the Hornets' second unit this this year. But th- the bench was really good against Milwaukee in this one. Sorry, BG.
2: No, you're no all good. Um, yeah, Travion Graham gets a gets a team high plus seventeen points for the Hornets in this game. You know, as the Hornets have struggled this year. The starters have actually largely been pretty good for the most part. Uh, they got absolutely dusted in this game by a Bucks team that didn't have clearly its best player. Um, you know the 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 Bucks with Giannis on and off. It's sort of a similar differential to the Hornets and Kemba, although albeit not quite as quite as stark. Mostly because they have a guy like uh, Middleton that can carry the offense and, and Malcolm Brogdon, who's a pretty good uh, bench player too. But uh. Yeah, I thought this was a great shooting game for the Hornets. To get up 40 free throws, including 20 in the fourth quarter, uh, was big. And, I mean, obviously the threes that, that Trevion hit in this game were just were, were incredible. I agree. I thought Dwight was pretty solid this game. Um, 16 rebounds, 20 points. They were minus five of them on the court. But a lot of that was just some of, the, uh, some of the minutes with the starters that just didn't go so hot. And he hit above 50% of his free throws, too. So... You know, this was one of the better shooting games the Hornets have had all season. Uh, They score over 111 points for 100 possessions in this contest. And they assist on over 61% of their made field goals. That's, I think, one of probably just like seven or eight games this season where they have assisted on over 60% of of the the made shots from the field. Another good game, defensive rebounding. They clear 83% of their defensive rebounds true shooting percentage of 61%, effective field goal percentage of 55%. And yeah, I mean, even though they didn't take a ton of threes, just 21, they make nine of them. And, you know, when the Hornets, because they don't turn the ball over a lot, although they did cough it up 16 times in this game, when they don't turn it over that many times and they hit 40 plus percent of their threes, and if they get to the line over 30 times, like they're probably going to win those games, especially when the other team doesn't have far and away its best player so this was i thought a a solid game for the for the hornets and uh you know i thought they they did a good job carrying some of the good vibes from friday night into saturday night against the bucks on sort of a strange back-to-back taking on the same team in two different cities and um you know unfortunately just couldn't carry that over until a a much better uh boston team uh (laughs) on wednesday night
3: yeah, I mean, certainly this was one of Charlotte's best offensive performances of the season um, from an efficiency standpoint. Uh, BG, threw out some, some numbers there. Um, you know, one 114.7 offensive rating for Charlotte, That that's pretty dang good uh, yeah. for them in terms of what they've been doing uh, for most of the time this season. And look, give Silas some credit late in the game. I mean, the Bucs were not bringing any help. Uh, when Dwight Howard got a post up opportunity, it was one on one versus Henson. Uh, they were daring Dwight to to finish or, or find a way to get to the free throw line, um, and he was pretty effective. So, and then but Silas mixed that in with some really good late game stuff for Kimba. Um, BG, I know you mentioned on Twitter, uh, you know the late game where, uh, play where where Kemba brings it down, he'll throw it to the top, which is usually Marvin or Nick, uh, run his man off. Really what looks like just a UCLA cut, uh, but really is a flare screen, uh, especially if his defender tries to cheat and go under, which Bledsoe did, Kimba nailed a three, and then they run something very similar to where Kimba does kind of take off off Dwight, almost like a UCLA cut, and then zoom back off the pin down uh, looking for stuff. And and Milwaukee had a tough time negotiating that action. Henson, actually, then the second time, the one after the Kimba three, uh, the second time, uh, Henson gets kind of caught up top against Kimba as Bledsoe gets caught on the screen. Kimba notices it quickly, goes right at Henson's left hip. Uh, and now the Hornets are, are able to create stuff as, as the defense is scrambling. So some good late game stuff from Silas. So, you know, a little tip of the cap, cap to him there, balancing Kimba's diet uh, along with Dwight's diet late in that game.
2: Yeah, and I should just say, in eight minutes with Frank Kaminsky and Kimba Walker on the Kemba Walker on the court, uh, in this game against Milwaukee, the Hornets score over uh, 1.7 points per possession with those two guys on the court. I mean, they they were they were basically unguardable with the combination of Kemba, Kaminsky, and Nick Batum on the floor Saturday night against the Bucks.
3: It, you know, it was really impressive uh, from you know, like I said, what we're used to seeing from this group, but um, certainly a, a very solid sign for Charlotte on the offensive end. And then you think. <laughs> All right, here we go. We got all this rest coming up. What three or four days rest before the Boston game? Um, we're starting to turn a little bit of a corner, and uh, that that not uh, being the case. Richie, anything you want to add to this Milwaukee game before we get to Boston, uh, which was last night?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I previously mentioned it, but just just the huge stop that MKG had late in this game. He had five fouls on him, and Milwaukee was in the bonus. I, I cannot remember; it wasn't it wasn't like a buzzer beater by any means. It, there still was some time left on the clock, but you know, he played him straight up. Basically, was with him all the way. Contested his shot. Middleton missed the shot, and then to end the game, we just kind of hit our free throws. But uh, that stop was huge, and he had five fouls on him. So, to, knowing that he had five fouls, knowing that Milwaukee was in the bonus, he was still aggressive. And Silas, you know, had confidence in putting him on Middleton, who seems to be a hornet killer over his career.
2: Yeah, uh, no, no doubt. He he made life tough for Middleton, who took a who took a, a ton of shots, including seven of which that were contested according to the NBA's tracking data. Uh, I'm guessing most of those were contested by uh, MKG. This does, re- this does remind me, I want to throw this in real quick, the Friday night game uh, with the Hornets and Bucks, when Kemba had a great shooting performance should be noted that 15 of his field goals that night were uncontested field goals. And like if Kemba gets that many uncontested field goals, he'll probably make the opposing team play. And again, that's not the Saturday night win in Charlotte. The 15 uncontested field goals that I forgot to mention earlier with Kemba, relate to the uh, the Friday night defeat for the Hornets up in Milwaukee. But I did want to throw that in there, too. That's probably a product of them being able to play five out that game. So I know yep. I'm backtracking a little bit there, but I wanted to make sure I got that in.
3: All right, um, let's get to last night. The Hornets, uh, again, were at home against the Celtics on how many days rest was it then so saturday you had sunday monday tuesday so on three days rest three and a half days rest really the hornets go in the last night against a boston team that actually played on christmas and lost on christmas so you know you had to think coming off a good offensive performance a a nice win at home you you know on the second of a back-to-back and now you get a boston team who had to play on christmas day has to travel to charlotte um, you like your chances here, and the Hornets were sliced up uh, in the beginning. Um, man, the Celtics are really hard to guard. I mean, let me just start by saying that. They, they play a five-out scheme most of the time. You know, they'll start Baines, and he, he's the quote-unquote ceremonial starter. We'll get some spot minutes. But once they get into their stuff and they've got Al Horford at five, um, mm-hmm. this team is really, really hard to defend. But early in the game, it was just – you know, simple pick and pops. I mean, they, it's just Kyrie Irving, um, Al Horford pick and rolls, and Marvin's just overhelping. Uh, and, and can you blame him? I mean, he's helping on Kyrie Irving, but Horford just popping right to the top of the arc. Uh, Irving just throwing him a little behind the back pass, and, and there's nobody with, within 10 feet of Horford. And he nails two triples uh, almost right out of the gates. So the Hornets are down 8-1. to one. Um, and the Hornets just could really never get into until that third quarter where Batum really got his hands on some balls. Hornets were able to get some deflections. They just weren't able to get into any kind of defensive rhythm, um, and continued to put Marvin in that, in that little pick and pop action early in the first quarter, um, and and made the Hornets pay. Uh, the offense looked terrible to start, Mm -hmm. um, Dwight really struggling, uh, turning the ball over. I think at least two times there in that first quarter. Kim is just not looking right. Uh, four uncharacteristic turnovers last night. Um, a, f- a few of them just got taken from him. Uh, Terry Rozier had one yeah. steal. I think Smart had another one. Um, and, and then just kind of fumbling the ball. You've seen more of that from Kimba this year. And, I, you know, it's it could be a product of... Personnel and and uncertainty and not as much space as he's had in the past few seasons. But, you know, you've seen these uncharacteristic turnovers where Kim is almost like giving the ball away or getting it taken from him. I've noticed it here and there more this year than in past. Um, and so early in the game, Charlotte really
1: not able to get it going at all. No, I mean they shot 26% from the field in the first quarter. It was just a struggle for our offense. We couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't get anything going towards the paint with you know Boston's stout switching defense. It's just tough for us to get things going towards the paint as it is uh, with our offense. And, you know, combine that with the fact that Boston switches pretty much everything, it makes it very difficult for us. And we don't have any shooters that can kind of get out of of that slump. Uh, We shot the ball 26% in the first quarter and only uh, tallied 16 points. So definitely it was looking like a rough game, you know, especially early on. But that third quarter, like you said, Spencer, we did turn defense to offense with Batum. We pushed the pace a little bit. Uh, I even heard Silas from the sideline urging the Hornets to get the ball up in um, in the front court. So we, we settled down on defense in the second half, but it, it was too little too late. Uh, we had runs of 12-0 and 7-0 in the third quarter to kind of keep this game close. We never actually led. Uh, we got real close in the third quarter. Boston led for the full time besides the tip-off. Uh, it, it was ugly, ugly offense to watch, especially early on.
2: This is one of those games that I always feel this way whenever I see the Hornets play the Warriors, like, like they did a few weeks ago, too, where you're just like, you're not even playing the same. I mean, you're just watching Charlotte play a version of basketball that's nowhere that's nowhere close to what Boston do. What Boston can do, they can play five out. Um, they shoot 34 threes last night. Charlotte takes 23. They can switch everything on defense. They know they need to switch everything on defense, and it's just like, how can you compete? You know, and a team like Boston that even without Jalen Brown and even without Marcus Morris too tough two-way players for that team that can both shoot and defend multiple positions, you know, they it still makes everything so tough for Charlotte, and it basically is Kemba or bust. It's like, yeah, they're going to switch, and can you beat Al Horford? Can you shoot over the top of him or or Tatum or whomever else flips out on Tice, you know, whoever that is. And if you can't, well, then we're going to get steamrolled. Um, They kept it pretty close, I guess, for the most part, mostly because, you know, Kemba scored. Kemba hit four threes or whatever. But this is just one of those games. I mean, they shoot under 37% from the field. Um, They've done that a lot this season where they've shot under 40% from the field. They shoot 30% from three. Um, Here's some other numbers. They go 14 of 27 at the rim, 52%. That's terrible. They go 3 of 18 on mid-range attempts inside of 14 feet, 17%. That's terrible. So this team goes 17 of 45 on field goal attempts within 14 feet. Of the hoop that's uh, 38%. That's terrible uh, in the half court. Yeah, Charlotte scores only 76 points per 100 half court possessions in this game. That's absolutely awful. They assist on only 14 of 30 of their 32 Mayfield field goals 47%. That's really bad. Uh, they throw only 262 passes in this game. I know this was a low possession affair, but that's a number that would basically average to be dead last in the NBA. Fourth quarter offense, they shoot six of 22 from the field, only one assist in the fourth quarter, one of seven on threes. They attempt just four free throws, and they score only 81 points per 100 possessions. Charlotte, after last night's dreadful performance in the fourth quarter, now ranks dead last in the NBA in offensive efficiency in the fourth quarter, under 99 points per 100 possessions. That's really bad. And I thought there was one... Real big swing in the fourth quarter. Um, It was 81-77. Boston had the ball. Terry Rozier drives. Dwight, nice help. Nice help. Recovers. Pins his shot at the rim. Uh, Leads to a break, actually. Lamb pushes and hits uh, Trevian Graham in the corner for a three. Uh, Dwight's the trailer uh, on this possession. Graham misses the three-pointer. Dwight's around the top of the key. He's the last guy down on offense for the Hornets. And instead of hanging back, making sure the floor is balanced, he crashes the glass. And there's absolutely no one home. Um, and so after Graham misses the three, and, and instead of running back, Dwight and Frank both for some reason charge Shane Larkin, who has the ball. And he tosses it up. this is what led to the alley-oop slam for Tatum, who dunks the ball on a three-on-one fast break. And by the way, guess who the only player back for Charlotte was? It was Trevian Graham. Yeah, and was Shre- in yeah. the Corner three. And it was like yeah. – is pathetic that is pathetic offense that's pathetic transition defense that's a complete lack of attention to detail from dwight i mean it was just it was it was awful it's a five-point swing and look charlotte kept it close for a while after that but you just can't have possessions like that especially when you're at such a talent disadvantage to a team like boston like it's a two possession game in the fourth quarter and you just you can't you can't just ralph up opportunities like that and by the way That wasn't the only time in the fourth quarter they completely lost balance of the floor. There was another possession later in the game. It's 91-86. Pick and roll with Kemba and Dwight. Entire Boston team loads up on Kemba. Shocker, I know. Uh, As Kemba drives, lands the weak side wing, he crashes, cuts in. Doesn't instead of cycling back to the top of the key. Batum's on the opposite wing. He doesn't rotate up. Dwight loafs after the ball after uh, Kemba misses. Tatum just, I mean, immediately just sees at the floor. There's literally no one in, in center field. There's no one in the middle of the court. Tatum sprints wide open, right into the open space. Uh, easy pe- uh, hit ahead pass from Marcus Smart. I mean, Marvin was the only guy within 10 feet of this guy when he's dunking it with two hands on the uh, opposite end. And it, that, those were two possessions within a few minutes of one another in the fourth quarter. And it's just, it's terrible. Just awful floor balance. And it's awful transition defense. I mean, you guys, you know me, man. I don't I don't want to get into like I try not to get into extremes and into hot takes and be overly critical, especially when you're looking at one play out of a hundred or whatever. But that's it was awful. And and really the the Dwight chasing an offensive rebound, it's just so perfect. Like it is and that's why when people come back to you after the game and you say, Man, Dwight's not really playing that well, and they say, Yeah, but 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 look at all these offensive rebounds. And you're like, Yeah, he's also chasing them too. These are empty numbers, and every single advanced metric in the book will tell you this guy's a net negative for this team on offense, and those types of possessions are also a negative on defense. Mm -hmm. It's a huge problem for this Hornets team.
3: 18 fast-break points for – no, 19 fast-break points for Boston in this game. Uh, Yeah, you're absolutely right, BG, the Hornets – Or sending three guys to the offensive glass on numerous possessions, four guys on the one possession, you pointed out, where Travion was the only one to get back. Um, You know, it doesn't seem like a scheme uh, or some new strategy Silas is trying to roll out. It it certainly seems like a lack of attention to detail, um, not being disciplined enough to, to execute. And a team that, frankly, two things is not locked in, doesn't care too much. And number two has no identity and hasn't had an identity uh, for really the entirety of the season. I mean, those, those are the kinds of things that happen when a team is not locked in mentally. Um, So you can say what you want uh, about Dwight or, uh, you know, about the effort level of this team, but, but mentally right now, it's, it's very clear that they're not, they're not present.
1: Um, They are certainly not present. They're not on the same page. Yeah, I don't think I can match little Brian's rant right there, but that was awesome. That was awesome to hear the emotion. Uh, But another play that stuck out in my mind uh, in the fourth quarter, fourth quarter, uh, Charlotte was down five with uh, a little over five minutes to play. And you noted it too, Brian, on on Twitter. Kaminsky and Walker did a a pick and pop. This just epitomizes Kaminsky's play as a Charlotte Hornet. Wide open. Totally does. <laughs> wide open. He hesitated, so he so he might as well just pump at this point, because Horford is now closing in on him. He gets a step on Horford, puts one foot in the lane and then at the elbow, and he kind of shoots a fadeaway, fall away mid-range shot and a miss. And you know, Obviously Kaminsky wasn't having a good game shooting the ball from behind the arc, but you got you got to take that shot. You got to take that shot when it's open, not a off the bounce fadeaway shot from the mid range. It's just not a good shot from Kaminsky, who has not made a living in the mid range at all during his career. So that just you know his his confidence wavers. So when he's not shooting the ball well, those open shots that should be good shots, he's not going to take.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll add in the, what was amazing was the possession. I think it was the possession that right before then. He, got his, he had a three-pointer from the top of the key blocked by Tatum, who, by the way, is like five inches shorter than he is. And it was amazing because he loafs back to get the ball. Like He has to go back to Charlotte's end of the court. He grabs the ball. And this whole possession, just. this was Charlotte's season in a nutshell to me. Kaminsky goes up soft. He gets his three pointer blocked by a smaller defender. He loves back to get the ball. He throws it up to Kemba, who immediately smokes past Horford and lays it up at the rim. And it was like, God, this guy has to do just everything for this team. Like, yeah. he has, like Kemba just you're asking the smallest guy on the court to just do bleeping everything for you, and it's it's just it's frustrating to watch. And I can't imagine. I know Kemba's a tough guy, and I know he's a team first guy. I know he loves his teammates, but I can't imagine how frustrating it is. On possessions like that, where you got to wait for Frank to shuffle back to get the ball, just so he can get it to you, so you can make something out of literally nothing with under eight seconds left on the shot clock. Um,
3: so anyways. I mean, uh, yeah, unless Frank is is shooting a, a pick and pop wide open three uh, with Kimba setting him up, or he's got a smaller defender um, or slower defender that he can he can get by. Uh, I mean, that guy is just lost on the floor. He gives you nothing defensively consistently. Um, you know, when he has to play five, you know, as he's had to here recently, more, there's nowhere to hide him. Um, I mean, he's just, he is certainly a net negative when you put all that together. And there's just zero signs of development for Frank on the offensive end. And like defensively, whatever, it is what it is. Um, don't expect that guy to ever really be anything on that end, but offensively, between Nicholas Batum and Frank Kaminsky, the Hornets have enough one-foot fadeaways to share across the entire (laughs) league. Uh, And and frankly, like both of those guys, neither one has a great first step, but both of those guys have enough agility to to go by their defender, especially a closing-out defender. But God Almighty, if they have to take any contact – Around the rim, if they have to play through any kind of contact, you can guarantee they're going to reverse pivot and take that one foot fadeaway jump shot. It's just pathetic yeah. uh, to, to see a guy like Frank Kaminsky, who is lauded to be this, you know, offensively vers- versatile uh, seven footer seem to regress uh, here on the offensive end again, unless he's just got like a wide open pick and pop three at the top of the arc. Um, I mean, we've talked about a lot in the past. I I just, and I've never really come off this stoop. I mean, again, he'll have that once every two weeks, you know, splash in a panic game where he hits Mm -hmm. five threes or whatever. Yeah. But I'm I'm done with Frank, and I'm and I'm done even believing there's a one percent chance that he's ever going to develop offensively or or be a real NBA player. I mean, I I still continue to believe he's the. I don't, I'm not sure if he belongs in the NBA. Um, just no signs of development at all on the offensive end from this guy.
2: Yeah, so this season on his three-pointers, he's 32 of 81, which is pretty good, 40% on threes when there's no defender within six-plus feet of him, wide open. When there's a defender within four to six feet of him, still, as the NBA defines it, open, he is four of 22, 18%. And when defenders are between zero or four feet of him, he's attempted only one three this season. He missed it, of course. I mean, like, he has to be absolutely wide open. The shot has to be created either by ball movement or, you know, Kemba drawing two defenders, you know, or a trap or whatever out of a pick and pop. If not, and he's only making 40% of those, which, again, is pretty good. But if anybody's within, you know, four feet of him, he's either not going to shoot the ball or he's going to miss it 80-plus percent of the time, period. That's you because last year it was yeah. the
1: opposite. I felt he felt like he missed a lot of wide open threes last year. He he,
3: he missed a, lot, a large a lot more <laughs> of them than he has so far this year. Um, which is really the, the one area he's improved. I would say this too, like for a guy that w- was so hyped with being this versatile player on the offensive end, he really has very little skill when he puts the ball on the floor.
4: Mm-hmm. making
3: the right decision with the ball. And you saw this in a in a clutch situation um, on, let's see, the first of the Milwaukee game. So the one in Milwaukee, uh, I think the Hornets are down 106-104 in that situation. It actually might have been tied. Um, Frank catches it in the top. He attacks a closeout, goes by Giannis, I think, gets into the middle of the paint. You know, he's got two or three bucks converging on him. And then, Honestly, I don't even like remember what he did. If he tried to pass it, I think he like fumbled it because he wasn't sure what he wanted to do and he picked the ball up and now he was dragging his pivot foot. Um, unbelievable when this guy's like rolling through or when he attacks a closeout and he's dribbling through the lane. If it's not that little floater or he can, you know, reverse pivot and get to the other side, he almost has like. Zero IQ to see where the defenders are converging on him from, and just setting up his setting up his teammate. I mean, he's got he's got it, it's unbelievable. I mean, you would think that that kind of comes with the package, right? The seven footer that can that can stretch the floors, hit threes, uh, has a little bit of wiggle to get inside the lane. But like once he gets there, if he doesn't have an, a wide open shot or free free lane to the rim, um, there's not good decisions being made, um, and you could see it in that Milwaukee game, especially uh, late in that game. I mean, that that turnover led to the Giannis fast break opportunity uh, that really put the game out of reach for Charlotte. So Kaminsky continues to be frustrating.
2: Yeah, I mean, he had another, he just plays, I mean, I I do feel a little bad because I feel like he's thinking through everything so much. I mean, he plays slow because he is slow. But also, he's robotic because he's just think he's just thinking so hard through every single motion. He's on the court. In the in the Friday night game, the loss at Milwaukee, he hit another play in the fourth quarter where he ran a pick and pop with Batum on the side. He popped to the top of the key. Giannis was helping off Marvin Williams, and he darted up to this. This actually may be the play you were talking about, Spencer. But Giannis darts up to to stop at the top, and he drives right past him. And and Giannis is, like, way out of position, is way above the three-point line. But as Frank tanks, you know, two or three dribbles into the middle of the lane, it happens so slowly that it gives Giannis plenty of time to recover and get back and intercept the pass. And, like, it's an amazing play by Giannis. And he – I mean, I actually, like, took a video of it and tweeted it out that night. But it just – it's also only possible because Frank Kaminsky is so slow and unsure of himself Even though he's seven feet tall and rambling, you know, rumbling wide open right down the middle of the lane, he just doesn't know what to do with the ball at all.
3: That's it's a really good point, BG. He is thinking a lot. The game has always seemed to be a little bit too fast for him, um, on the NBA level. And look, he's a skilled player, no doubt about that, but. You know, the Big Ten, (laughs) that's the slowest pace of basketball (laughs) in the country. And they
2: just fed him. Yeah,
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just – that's basically University of Virginia basketball right there. I mean, very, very similar from a pace standpoint. So, you know, maybe uh, – that's hard. It's hard to measure that stuff coming out of college. Like what guys are going to be able to think their way through the NBA game and and be able to adjust to the speed of it. But there's just – there never has been signs of Frank being able to do that. Um, And and there continue to be to be – Frankly, less signs uh, of that being the case. So, the time is uh, the clock is certainly ticking on Frank Kaminsky and his career uh, in the NBA, definitely with the Hornets. All right, anything else in this game, Richie? We want to get to to some
1: Twitter questions. Yeah, let, let's uh, let's jump right into these Twitter questions. And I actually have a question that I came up with after this discussion uh, in this episode. So maybe I'll throw a question out too if we have time. But this first Twitter question comes from at Patrick Connor Seven. Uh, on Twitter, he asks, and I'll kind of quickly give my thoughts. I don't have I don't really think about it too much. But would you would trading Batum plus a first round to the Lakers for Brooke Lopez's expiring make sense? Uh, And I'll just quickly give my thoughts. I I would say no, uh, not to me. I don't think this would be the ideal trade to get off Batum's contract. I understand why we want to or why people would want to get off his contract, but I don't really understand what we would do with the cap flexibility that we would gain with this trade. You know, I'm of the notion that we need to build through the draft and with younger players. And if you're trying to entice someone to come to Charlotte through free agency because we have extra money, I think that's really the only way that you're going to get someone to come to Charlotte is through overpaying that person uh, in free agency. So if we're trying to clear some cap space here by getting off Batum's contract and getting an expiring contract in Lopez. I just don't see it, especially because we're giving up a future first. I want that future first down the line to kind of develop uh, a younger player. Yes, we have not been good at drafting, but that's a different issue. We've talked about that before a different issue altogether. So giving up a future first and Batum for Lopez doesn't seem like a, a, a deal that makes sense to me. What do you, what do you think about that, Brian?
2: Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you, Richie. Um, I mean, it's appealing, the thought of getting off all that money with Batum. And again, he's owed $77 million after this season, including that final year player option for $27 million, which he will absolutely pick up. Um, unless unless Charlotte's pick is heavily protected, right? you know what I mean? Then, then I mean, that's, that's a totally a non-starter, uh, especially because this pick has a chance to be a top five pick. And if you trade Batum, it's almost, you know, you're going to be really bad. And I mean, I guess Lopez would, would make, but then you got Lopez and Dwight on the same team. You couldn't play them together uh, unless you were an insane person. Um, But anyways, the team, regardless, the team is terrible and would get worse. And so it it has the chance to be a really high pick. And I don't want to just float that to the Lakers again. I I can see why it's appealing um, to get off the Batum deal. And I commend Patrick for not. I mean that that's a deal that is not lopsided in favor of Charlotte. So he he's probably thinking in the right way there with that hypothetical deal. But again, unless unless that unless that pick is is um you know is is highly protected, I'm not interested in it. And I don't think the Lakers would even be stoked about uh, bringing back Batum. He doesn't really fit their timeline of uh, you know of these young guys like Ball and Kuzma and, and Ingram that are all you know 21, 22 years old or, or younger. So, um, I'm, I'm interested and I like the thought of being able to move Batum and you'd certainly need to put a sweetener onto it like that, but that's not probably not the move I would, I would look towards.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with you guys. I I don't, for two reasons, don't see why this deal would happen either way. I mean, number one for Charlotte, you know, even if you've got some pretty good protection on that pick, the last thing the Hornets need to be doing right now is trading away future first round, uh, picks and assets. Uh, You know, of that fold. And number two, you know, I I don't I don't know that. Interested in that, I think they're going to be in the market um, of trying to, you know, lull a free agent um, to Los Angeles here this summer. Definitely the next. So Batum really, really crowds that 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 salary cap. Um, so would, would be surprised. Uh, but yeah, you're right, BG. I mean, thinking in the right way here, Yeah, I think that the Hornets need to think and, and fans too. I think this is important. Batoon's deal is probably not the one we need to think about trading number one, because it, it's going to be the hardest I think to get mm-hmm. off of because of the length of this deal. Um, and look, let's be patient because you know, this roster is going to get shaken up here in the next six months. And you know, Batum can get better, number one. Number two, you could see another salary cap spike, um, you know, across the league here in the next two to three seasons, um, which could really help uh, Batum and the Hornets down the road. I mean, once you get with Batum's deal, kind of where Kim is now in that one and a half year range and say, you know, he starts playing some better basketball, um and the salary cap spikes, you know, all of a sudden now you're looking at a contract that might be tradable. So to trade it now and and shoot yourself in the foot by attaching another asset to it, I think it's Mm -hmm. short-sighted. You know, know, the Marvin Williams, the Michael K. Gilchrist, obviously Kimball Walker. You know, these are the deals that are going to be movable that teams are attracted to now. And with the amount of time left on those deals, it it makes more sense for Charlotte to look at those type of moves uh, opposed to – you know, just mortgaging way too much to get off a lot of money, which is Batum, but it, it's not the kind of deal Charlotte needs to be thinking about right now. They have got to be in the market of creating more flexibility from a cap perspective for themselves, and and, and trading Nick Batum is not going to do that in any way.
1: Yeah. All right, so this is not a Twitter question, but it's a question that I came up with, but you can follow me on Twitter, yeah. at Richie Randall. Uh, this nice. question is probably not – one that uh, the Hornets coaching staff is going to think about because we've talked about it. They're kind of stubborn and, and they're not, and rigid in this. If you were to create an ideal small ball lineup for the Charlotte Hornets with the current roster that it is right now, who would be your, your one through five here, your small ball lineup for the Hornets? Now, I'm going to go ahead and give mine. Uh, Kim at the one, Lamb at the two, Travion at the three. MKG at the 4, and Marvin at the 5. I'm slowly coming around to playing MKG at the 4. I think I was a little bit hesitant at doing that at first because... Typically, with small ball lineups, you want someone that can space the court, you know, at your four or your five. So maybe with Marvin at the five, he can he can space the court, and maybe MKG would be the player that kind of clogs up the lane, and he can he's going to be the one that finds the cutting lanes. But I do like the versatility in that lineup. I was thinking about maybe adding Frank to that lineup and switching it around a little bit. But Kimba, Lamb, Travion, MKG, and Marvin. Do you guys have a small ball lineup currently for the Hornets?
3: I, I would I would probably go Kimba. Lamb, Batum, MKG, mm. Marvin, um, I, you know, I like what you're doing with on there. I still, you know, like the Kimba Batum, um, you know, creator next to creator fit. Uh, you know, I think MKG really being able to play center field defensive five uh, is very attractive And then obviously, you know, it really frees Marvin Williams to occupy the corner uh, offensively, I think, where he's been really, really effective. You don't have to put him in as many ball screens with that lineup. Uh, And you can kind of just, you know, a lot of stuff involving Lamb, Batum, uh, and Kimba, it's going to yield you action going to the rim. MKG, you know, cutting uh, off the defensive help and being in that short corner area, being able to be creative in the gaps. And then again, you know, off of that, just finding Marvin, occupying that corner where he's so dangerous. So I think that's a lineup I would go with.
2: Yeah, it's unfortunate that the team doesn't have but only so many options. Like there's like there's like seven or eight guys you can think of. And basically, it, you know, those guys have to be involved in this. Um, I tweeted this out the other day. There are some sort of encouraging lot numbers with, uh, albeit in a small sample size, with MKG at the four next to Kaminsky at the five. But if I'm going to get funky with my with my ideal small ball five with the Hornets, obviously I'm using Kemba. Probably going to go Batum over Lamb. Then, like like Richie said, I like Trevion Graham as my as my corner shooter from the threes. Plus MKG plus Marvin Williams. And what I'm doing is I'm spreading the court. Slicing and dicing with Kemba and MKG. I'm using MKG the way Oklahoma City uses Andre Roberson at times, where he's your uh your screener and your roll guy, and he's your dive guy. And everyone else around the perimeter is a thirty-five to forty percent three point shooter, including some really good catch and shoot guys like Graham and Marvin that are above forty four percent on catch and shoots this year. So that's probably what I would do. But again, your options, I mean you're kind of hands are right. tied a little bit here
3: few more Twitter questions here. Uh, really, this is one question, two questions within the question from at Joey Bidness, B-I-D-N-E-S-S on Twitter. Um, one of his questions was about Travion's potential. We covered that earlier in the show, I think. The uh, yeah. second question was second half schedule for the Hornets um, and, and if they can make a run to get back in this thing. You know, Right now they're 12-22, and 22, so 10 games below 500. Uh, You you know, I would say, look at these next 13 games, maybe not the whole second half of the season. Next 13, they get ready uh, for a four game West Coast road trip starting Friday night in Golden State. And then that will end the following Friday with the Lakers, um, Sacramento and the Clippers in between those two. Uh, And then the eight of the next nine after that are actually at home for Charlotte and some winnable games during that stretch. So I, I would say that you know, you get through the, that stretch of 13 games at eight, eight and five, nine and four. You know, I think you have a chance uh, to kid yourselves into believing <laughs> you could stay alive for the playoffs. Um, but, you know, you play those stretch, that, that next 13, it, worse than 500. I, I think it's certainly time to hang it up then. Um, any thoughts from you guys on this?
2: Yeah. So the Hornets have 48 games left, uh, 28 of those will be on the road. That's the second. Uh, largest number of road games that any team in the NBA has. Only The the Knicks will have to play 28 road games. They're the only team with more road contests left on the schedule, the way it's currently constituted. Uh, Of nine of those 48 uh, games, Charlotte will be at a rest disadvantage. Charlotte has eight back-to-back games left over the course of that stretch. The Hornets will be at a rest advantage in uh, 11 of their games. And Again, in terms of rest advantage, rest disadvantage, they're towards like the median of the of the league uh, in both of those, but obviously they have a lot of road contests um, on the horizon, including I mean they've got like Spencer just said this four game swing in California, then they've got an they've got an Eastern Conference swing with Miami, the Pacers, the Hawks at the end of January, and then one other thing I would sort of like that I kind of want to highlight too, it's the first to the second week of February, it's February fourth through the 9th. Uh, at Phoenix, at Denver, at Portland, at Utah. It's important to remember that game at Portland, uh, it's a 10 o'clock game, Thursday, February 8th. I'm highlighting that because that is the date of the NBA trade deadline too. So, you know, as as Charlotte approaches this deadline, if they do decide to mix up this roster, which I think the three of us all sort of agree that they should do, um, you know, maybe they get something done at the end of January, or whatever, but there's a chance the team could be on the road um, you know, as as the Hornets are possibly trying to make a, a deadline deal or something like that. So that's just one other thing I would note. There's basically 20 games to, between now and then as well, too. But uh, yeah, the Hornets will be in the middle of a uh, of a West Coast road swing uh, when the deadline uh, occurs.
1: Yeah, I think initially when the when the schedule came out, we all noted that we had to get off to a quick start because uh, a lot of the road games came after the new year. I think what was difficult for the Hornets was the fact that a lot of our home games, just based on a quick glance, Typically, were the tougher opponents. Uh, you know, it might have changed over the course of the season with the strength of schedule and everything. But the road games that we have coming up, Brian just noted, twenty-eight of our last forty-eight games come on the road, which is a lot. Uh, they might be easier opponents, but at this point, when you're ten games below five hundred. Uh, you don't really have much going for you with the with the season as it is, and you know Spencer, you keep using the word winnable games, but I, th- I think a team that's ten games below five hundred, I don't think really any game is quote unquote winnable <laughs> in my eyes. So uh, all these games I think are going to be difficult, especially when they're when they're coming on the road.
3: Yeah, I mean in terms of um, um, they
1: used to be winnable state, last season. They yeah, used to be winnable.
3: In ter- in terms of staying alive, I guess is a better way to say it. Right. Um, you know, there there's still opportunity for Charlotte if if they have that run left in them. But yeah, this is just not like seasons past. I mean, this team just there is no hope for them to improve. I mean, and I think in the past you could certainly point out areas to where they could, but. I'm sorry, but it, this Dwight Howard experiment just has not worked. There's no way to see how the offense can get better and more efficient. And then defensively, this scheme is just being picked apart, especially by teams like, like last night, Boston. I mean, the small ball, we, do, we just can't match up a small ball because we're going to trot Dwight out there and put our he- you know heads between our legs and hope it works out this time. Uh, but it, we can't. The NBA has surpassed what uh, what Charlotte has to offer this season. Um, it's just not good enough. So I yeah I don't see a way this team can realistically improve Richie, which is I think pretty much what you're saying there.
2: 538 gives the Hornets an 18% chance of making the playoffs. Unpredictable gives them a 17% chance of making the playoffs. So you know whatever those two sites are are sort of baking into the cake with these types of playoff projections. Uh, I mean it's given the Hornets pretty. Pretty crummy odds. And uh, as they're about to head out on a West Coast road swing with one of those games being against the Warriors, uh, I wouldn't expect those to improve uh, over the next few nights. And yeah, this is what happens. They're 22nd in offense, they're 15th in defense. And yeah, it's just not a very good team. Um, and yeah, we'll have probably a lot to talk about as we go into the uh, the trade deadline. So we will probably
3: be back. Um, not sure yet, but probably next Saturday. Um, I w- I would assume so. A little over a week long uh, break here again as we get through the new year. Um, I know the schedule has been a little wonky during the holiday season, but we'll get back to hopefully recording every Saturday morning uh, once we get back on the other side once we get into 2018. So with that, uh, thank you guys for listening to episode 49 of BuzzBeat Radio. We'll we'll keep being here. So we're going to keep recording on Saturdays. We're going to keep talking Hornets, whatever that looks like, whether it be trade deadline. Uh, draft very soon Richie keeps He keeps texting me Like every single day When can we talk Draft prospect <laughs> yeah, When can we right. talk Draft prospect? <laughs> <laughs> So we'll, we'll get into that Soon enough As uh, college basketball Gets ready to heat up Richie you got a lot Of watching to do You got a lot I Of know. college basketball I know
1: Earlier than last year too It seems yep, like
3: Yep <laughs> Alright very good Well thank you guys For uh, for joining us Don't forget We are a proud member Of the Almighty Baller Radio network Check out Almightyballer.com And com Good friends at Sports Channel 8, sportschannel8.com with all the good North Carolina sports coverage. I would say go Hornets, but right now I don't mean it. So go Panthers, big game in Atlanta uh, this Sunday, and uh, stay strong, West City. We'll see you next time.